All right. Christiana, Gary, Tammy, Ella, thank you guys for hosting us this morning. It's so great to be here together, to be outside. It's fun to continue to see uh, some of you that I haven't seen in quite a while. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. As we talk about being a, a reconciled people, and there are these images in Scripture of, of the people of God being gathered in from all corners of the earth. It feels like we're, we're in-gathering uh, as, a, as a body, as a church, um, after a season of separation, and that's encouraging too. Let me ask you if you have a Bible with you or if you have one on your phone uh, to follow along with us this morning. We are in Isaiah 56. If you, uh, if you open your Bibles, usually Isaiah is just past the halfway mark in the Bible, and we'll be in the 56th chapter. We are thinking about reconciliation this month, and again, that's a, it's a big word. It's a big word theologically, and in, in the scriptures, I think it, it, it gets used in, in many different places, especially in Paul's letters in the New Testament. But when we speak about reconciliation, we're speaking about the coming together of those who were far apart, those who were divided, those who were separated. But coming together, having the hostility or the tension or whatever it is that separated and drove these groups of people apart for those things to be dealt with in order that we might be unified, we might be one. We're reading together uh, John Perkins' book called One Blood, and I think Perkins has a lot of wisdom to share with us about what uh, reconciliation can look like, what the work of reconciliation is for the church. And again, if you haven't gotten a copy, um, we have a few more books on order. They should be in the church by tomorrow. So feel free, you can come by the church during the week and grab a book. Um, let me again remind you on Thursday evening, we're going to meet at 6.30, uh, to watch a short film. It's about 25 minutes long about the life of John Perkins. Um, and hopefully from that, just to have a, a first conversation, just to begin to think both about the book and what's shared in that film and what Perkins has described as this ministry of reconciliation for the church. Um, we'll have popcorn and drinks. Bring your book if you've got a copy. Um, and uh, yeah, look forward to, to beginning that conversation. Uh, we're also hoping probably in the month of August to, to look at forming some small groups if you're interested in, in discussing what's in the book further and in more detail. So we'll keep you posted on those. When I think about uh, a coming together of, of people from all different places and colors and, and uh, languages and cultures, one of the, the few times in our world that we see that sort of visualized for us is the Olympic Games. And many of you maybe have been following the headlines. Two weeks, the, the nations of our world will be coming into Tokyo. They are uh, being referred to as the Tokyo 2020 Games, even though we're in 2021, which is a bit confusing. But I think that's a, a nod to the fact that due to the global pandemic, right, they and the world with them has had to wait an extra year for this, this ingathering of the nations for uh, the, the Olympics. But for the, the city of Tokyo, the, the waiting process was not just something that started last summer when the games were postponed. 
their, their waiting began in July 2011, so a full 10 years ago now, when they were selected to host these games. And so Japan and the city of Tokyo has had a, a full decade of waiting for the world to show up in their city. But even after they were selected, right, by the International Olympic Committee, even after they were promised that this thing was going to happen, that the nations of the earth would come to their doorstep, they had some things to do to get ready, right? They had some things to do in the waiting. The nation of Japan allocated more than $12 billion to do the work of preparing for these games, to build stadiums, to bring their infrastructure up to speed. They've had to recruit more than a quarter of a million volunteers for these games. And of course, on top of that, they've had to deal with the unimaginable complexity of calling together a global sporting event in the time of a global pandemic. Right, they've had all kinds of adjustments and pushbacks and, and, uh, and things they've had to consider. And so I think it's safe to say that the, the nation of Japan, the city of Tokyo, has had a very active time of waiting and preparing for these games to start. What does that have to do with reconciliation? Well, last week, we began this series on reconciliation with God's announcement, God's vision of choosing a particular people and a particular place where he was going to gather in this incredible multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We look together at Revelation 7. And God calls this group of nations and peoples together not to compete in global sports, but rather to worship together, right? to be gathered around the throne of the Lamb of God. And John is given that vision in Revelation 7 as a promise, as a, as a mandate, as God's heart saying, this is where the church must go. This is where the church will go. This is my intention for my people throughout eternity, to come together in this way. So that's God's announcement. That's God's promise, right, that this day is coming but my question for us this morning is, how do, we, how do we wait? How do we prepare for that future day? Are there things we're meant to be doing? Are there commitments we're meant to be making as a way of anticipating that work? And to help us answer that question this morning, I want to back up in Scripture. We were at the end of Scripture last week in Revelation. This morning, I want to turn to the prophet Isaiah. And this particular part of Isaiah, sort of the back half, the back third of Isaiah, is written to the people of Israel during a time where they had been uprooted. They had been scattered, right? They had been exiled as a people. And they'd been through, you know, not just decades, but generations of great suffering and difficulty. But in this part of Isaiah, God speaks tenderly to them. God speaks with hope. God speaks of a future. God speaks with, with mercy and kindness to his people. 
And he speaks of a day when he would gather the nations of Israel that had been scattered all over the ancient world, gathering them back into the promised land, back to Jerusalem, back to Canaan. And if you've got your scriptures open there this morning, maybe you can thumb back just a single page to Isaiah 55. And you'll see there's this great invitation that God makes in Isaiah 55. He talks about setting like a a banqueting table, a feast for his people who are coming back to the land. And he invites them to come and to buy wine and to buy milk without money. I guess that's appropriate since we're on a dairy farm this morning. I don't know if Gary will give you milk without money, but you can talk to him after the service. But he, he, he says, buy, buy wine and milk without money and feast on bread that will truly satisfy your hunger. And for this, this tired and scattered and weary people of Israel, right, this is an invitation to taste of the bounty, the riches of God's kindness and love for them. But if you look a little further down in Isaiah 55, we find out that the table, the feast that God sets for his people as he gathers them in, is not just set for Israel. It's not just set for the Jewish people of that day. Isaiah says that God has also invited nations you do not know to come running to you. Right? Like the, the nations that will stream into Tokyo in a few weeks' time. God says here that the world will come streaming into Jerusalem, into that place of worship, to give their acclamation and praise to Israel's God. And the question is whether the people of Israel, whether the ingathered tribes would be ready to welcome them when they show up. So with that as sort of the backdrop, let me pray for us and let me read Isaiah 56 this morning. Lord Jesus, we worship a God of mercy and kindness and undeserved bounty and goodness, Lord. You set a table before us day after day, Sabbath after Sabbath. Despite whether we have been faithful or whether we have failed you, you call us back to belong to you. But you extend that invitation for all people to belong at that same table. Lord, as a people who want to worship you, who want to worship you in the way that you delight in, Lord, would, would you give us ears to hear this morning? Would you enable the words of my mouth as I preach your word? May you enable our hearts as we receive it and respond to it. May you enable all those things to be pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who reconciles and restores all things that we pray. Amen. This is Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Let me invite you to listen for a couple of things as we read. Right? As, as God is preparing his people to welcome this ingathering of the nations, chapter 55, now in 56, 
we're told how they can prepare. And I want you to notice at the beginning of the passage, there are a couple of commands God gives his people. And then there are these beautiful series of promises that follow. Isaiah 56, 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and in its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, that I will gather still others to them besides those I have gathered already. We contend that just like Revelation 7, Isaiah 56 is a vision of a reconciled people. And if we want to be a church who is excited about, who is desirous for God to do the work of reconciliation among us, right, how does that work take place? How does it happen? Well, maybe we, we begin as we are this month by by reading about it in the scriptures, by preaching about it, by talking about it. But I think if we were going to have a picnic this afternoon by the river and we invited a prophet like Isaiah to join us, they'd say, that's a great start. But let me give you a verb. Let me give you a word that is throughout the Old Testament that I think speaks to what we do in response as a people. And it's the verb shamar. The verb shamar. It appears over 400 times in the Old Testament. And it has a, a range of meanings, but it basically means to keep or to guard or to steward or to care about something. Generally something of great value. And the very first time we see the verb shamar in all of Scripture is in Genesis 2. We're told that God created Adam and he placed him in the Garden of Eden. And he put him there to both work the soil, but also to shamar, to 
steward, to protect, to love that place he had given him. Here in Isaiah 56, we're not in the Garden of Eden, but we are in a, in a place in Scripture where God was bringing Israel back to the land, right? He was resettling them in Israel after a time where they had lost it. They had, they had gone into idolatry. They had practiced injustice. And so they had been sent out of the land. But now as God draws them back, as he sets this feast, as he tells them about his bountiful, bountiful provision for them, it's as if in verses 1 and 2, God is saying, if you're going to stay here, if you're going to love this place, if you're going to steward the gifts I am giving you, then you must shamar, you must keep two commands, God says. And the first of those is in verse 1, where Isaiah says, maintain justice and righteousness. Maintain is, is that word, shamar, to keep justice, to keep doing what is right. Basically, Isaiah says, if you are, are to love the land the God of Israel has called you back to, then maintain the ethic of justice that God has revealed to you throughout your history. I think one of the things that contemporary American Christianity needs most desperately to recover, and I, and I would put myself in this category, we need to recover a vivid sense of justice as the scriptures speak about it. What does justice mean to our God? We live at a moment in time where, where everyone right, is speaking about justice. Issues of justice are before us. They're being spoken about in, in, in our culture, in our politics. Right? It's a critical conversation our, our nation is attempting to have. But as people of God, we need to know what does justice mean to the one who has called us, who has saved us, who has redeemed us. And I wonder whether we have given adequate time and attention to the revelation of God in places like the book of Exodus, like the book of Deuteronomy, like the prophets Jeremiah, prophet Isaiah. Have we given adequate attention even to Jesus' own teaching in the Gospels and in his parables? Where again and again our God tells us that what he delights in is, is when we make ourselves, make our lives available to the vulnerable, to the stranger, to those at the margins of our communities, the places we live. Think about the feasts of Israel as described in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Whenever Israel was called up to Jerusalem to have these great celebrations and to, to eat of the harvest and to, to rejoice in God's presence, God is careful to instruct Israel that they don't just invite along grandma and grandpa and their children to make the pilgrimage with them. They're told, make sure the servants in your household. Make sure the stranger in your land. Make sure the fatherless, make sure the widow is invited to go up to the feast with you. Make sure 
they rest with you. Make sure they feast with you. Make sure the laws of your land welcome them and protect them and enfold them in your midst. And Israel is told to do this again and again because they were once strangers too in the land of Egypt. Right? This is God's sense of justice. As Old Testament commentator John Golden Gay puts it, he says, Yahweh is responsible for doing right by Israel, for, for showing mercy and kindness and provision for Israel. But Israel is responsible for the rightness of its own life. Israel is responsible then in turn as a response to what God has done for them to keep justice at the center of who they are as a family, as a people, as a nation. And we can also see very clearly in a book like Isaiah that justice is the reason why Israel is sent into exile in the first place, or rather, injustice. Right? They had grown, grown complacent. They had, they had grown rich and established in the land, but they cared no longer to, to shamar, to maintain the kind of justice God desired for them as a people. And so back at the first chapter in Isaiah, God speaks to the people and he says, I am not listening to your prayers anymore. I have no pleasure in your worship as a people because you've stopped pleading the case of the widow, because you've stopped defending the cause of the oppressed. And so as, as Pastor Tim Keller summarizes it, he says, when the people of God, when the church of God does not identify with the marginalized any longer, it will itself be marginalized. This is God's poetic sense of justice. And as the church, as the people of God today, we have to, we have to receive those warnings, those calls from the prophets with humility, Prayerfulness. Lord, what does justice look like for your people now and today? As John Perkins says in chapter 4 of his book, One Blood, he says, the church of Jesus Christ should be leading the work of justice in our nation, leading the work of justice in our communities. But Perkins says, instead, quote, our energy and our drive has been misdirected toward materialism, comfort, and convenience. He goes on to say, we have shut out the children and the people in our communities that need the influence of God's people and God's word on their lives. And instead, we have become inwardly focused. Perkins says, we must be broken about that reality. I don't have a, a great answer for you this morning, but I would love if our church, our, our body, our family began to pray and to ask God, where would you call us to lead in the work of justice? Where would you call us to show up in our community? Where would you call us to open up our doors to the vulnerable, to those on the margins, to those we are not in relationship with? 
as we ask, as we begin to pray that the Spirit would lead us in the work of justice, I think it's important that we also look at the second command Isaiah is, is giving to Israel in verse 2. Because I think it's actually maybe prerequisite or at least co-requisite. It's something we have to do alongside our desire to practice and to maintain justice. Verse 2 says, Blessed is the one who, who holds fast to justice, but also the one who holds or maintains or shamar, that same verb. Blessed is the one who keeps the Sabbath, who holds it fast, and who keeps their hand from doing evil. Those are the two commands Isaiah gives God's people to be a reconciled people, to maintain, to keep justice, and to maintain or to keep the Sabbath. And actually, keeping the Sabbath is something Isaiah speaks about a lot in this section. As God restores the people to the land, it comes up and again and again. Love the Sabbath. Delight in the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day. What does Sabbath keeping have to do with justice? What do you think? Well, I think in the scriptures it has quite a bit to do with justice. Because for the people of Israel, God gave them the Sabbath day. Not as a bunch of rules and laws to, to bind them up and to make them uncomfortable. He gave the Sabbath day as this fixed reminder, as a commitment of practicing delight in him as a people. Right? The Sabbath day was the, the one day in seven where all Israel would stop and they would rejoice. They would celebrate the goodness and the generosity and the bounty of God who created the world, who created them as a people. We see, we see that the command for Sabbath in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's really in Israel's history, it's, it's after the Exodus, right? It's, it's after God redeems Israel from slavery in Egypt and they're out in the wilderness that this practice is instituted for Israel. Because for 400 years, they didn't rest. For 400 years, they couldn't worship. For 400 years, Pharaoh enslaved them and extracted from them all that they could, could give him as their, his slaves and his workers. And so there in the wilderness, God says, every one day in seven, you're to delight. You're to stop working. You're to receive the bounty and the goodness and the love of, of the God who has saved you from that. How good are we at keeping the Sabbath day as a day to delight in God? A day to stop our busyness. A day to remember that everything we possess, look around you, everything that you see is God's gift to his people. I think the practice of Sabbath keeping, the practice of coming together and worship, practice of stopping and resting one day in seven reminds us that our God cares about us, reminds us that our God and his resources are limitless, that God is full of gift for his people. I hope that's, that's something you regularly experience on Sabbath when we worship and as you go home and continue that worship. And I think that practice is foundational for the work or the, the maintenance of justice. Because when we remember how bountiful, how rich, 
how merciful, how kind God has been to us, then we are likely in turn to extend that generosity, to extend that hospitality, to extend that welcome to others. In Deuteronomy 5, when Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel a second time, just as they're about to enter the land and to receive it as gift from God, what does he say about the Sabbath day? He reminds them that it's not a day for them just to go off and do as they please. It's not a day for them to worship individually. He says, on the day of the Sabbath, extend that rest and that generosity to the whole community. Let me quote Deuteronomy 5. On the Sabbath day, you shall not do any work, neither your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey or any one of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you rest. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Right? Sabbath keeping, delighting ourselves in the Lord, remembering his his rescue and his goodness and his love is all about justice. So I'm less concerned about the rules or the, the details in the way we keep Sabbath. I'm more concerned that we regularly pause, that we regularly stop to experience the generosity of God to us. So that we're confident that he will always supply more than we need. Even if we give it away, even if we make ourselves vulnerable, even if we make ourselves weak, God will make up the difference because he loves it when his people does do that. The more we are convinced that God sustains our world, not us, then the more generous we become in response the more hospitable we, come, we become in response, the more compassionate we become to extend rest to those who have no rest, to extend justice to those who have no justice, to make our family a family for those who have no family or people. As the writer Brian Stevenson says, the more we experience the mercy of God, the more willing we are to get proximate, get close to those God desires to work justice among. So if we not only desire to keep justice, then we need to let the Sabbath day, our worship of God, keep us, restore us, delight us. God charges us with keeping and, sab and, and stewarding the Sabbath day. God charges us with keeping and stewarding the work of justice. But he says that as we do those two things, verse 1 and verse 2, something beautiful begins to happen. God's spirit begins to, to go to work, and he begins to call in those from the margins to find a home among his people. Look at verses 3 through 8. The nations begin to pour into Jerusalem and into God's household. And verse 3 almost functions like a warning Heaven forbid, Isaiah says, that a foreigner or someone without family like a eunuch named here would find themselves marginalized or pushed out or, or believe that they don't belong among God's people. 
Verse 4, he says, For this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord desires. That those without children of their own, I will give them something even better. I will give them a name in a memorial within my temple and its walls. Verse 7, he says, To every refugee, to every immigrant, to every outsider that desires to have a place, to have a family that they belong to. God says, these people I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. For my house, he says, will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Verse 8, not only does God desire to gather the exiles of Israel. He wants to gather others besides. He wants to gather that every tribe, every tongue, every nation we see in Revelation. So as we conclude our time of worship this morning, let me invite you to meditate on those visions, Revelation 7, Isaiah 55, 56. This is what God loves to do. He's generous. He, he loves for his people to feast upon his goodness. But as he sets that vision before us, as we pray about how that vision would come forth, let's practice justice in the way God calls us to. Let's open our doors to the vulnerable, to those on the margins. And let's practice the delight of the Sabbath day together. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, on the one hand, have no power to affect the kind of reconciliation that needs to happen, not only at a, at a national and political, social level, but even the reconciliation that needs to happen in our own households, among our own neighborhoods, in Jericho and in Chittenden County. But Lord, you do. Your spirit is, is mighty for justice to roll down like a river. But you ask us as a people to call out, to cry out, to lead us so that we might respond, or that we might not be found guilty of neglecting your heart for these things. Holy Spirit, would you stir us to that work today? In Jesus' name, amen.